Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Almighty God, you have saved us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Most people in this room, because you're endlessly sophisticated, uh, will easily remember Billy Joel's 1989 hit entitled, We Didn't Start the Fire. Uh, That song, that annoyingly memorable song, chronicles 30 years worth of controversies and world-altering personalities, and it claims that the destructive chaos of the world, represented by fire, is unlikely to be put out. You likely know some of the lyrics. Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon, Studebaker, Television, North Korea, South Korea, Marilyn Monroe. Right. And then the oft-repeated chorus, we didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. No, we didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. And then do you recall the harrowing question at the conclusion of the song? But when we are gone, will it still burn on and on and on and on? You know, St. Billy of the House of Joel uh, is stunningly bleak. Uh, He says that while we ourselves did not light the original match, we also cannot stop the flames that were caused by it. Our crises, at least our core crises, are simply too significant and large, and the evidence for our inability to stop the fire is uncontestable. I think we could tonight easily add a few verses of our own to Billy's hit. I could do it right now, in fact. (laughs) I will. (laughs) Bill Cosby, angry tweets, burning riots, CRT, red hats, pink hats, how we left Afghanistan, gender madness, cancel culture, Harry, and then Meghan Markle, Killer bees, COVID-19, and then there's Jeffrey Epstein. (laughs) Well, additionally, I'm wondering if you can feel that same fire, not just in our wider culture, which is easy to blame, or in the news, which is easy to mock, but in the caverns of the self, in your own beleaguered experience from 2021, which we thought was going to be a lot better than 2020. Uh, I want to know about that. I want to know about the lymphoma scare. I want to know about the sleepless nights. I want to know about the meds that you were prescribed that were supposed to work but didn't work. I want to know about the massive fight that you had with a parent. I want to know about the breathtaking betrayals, the words too hastily muttered yet still overheard, the relationships that have soured or silenced. And maybe you tonight are thinking, after looking back on this past year, will it still burn on and on and on and on? Well, it's Christmas Eve, friends, and this evening I'm addressing all of us who have been burned by life. And I think that is all of us, by the way. We all need tonight some soothing aloe spread liberally to our many burns and scar tissue. We need somebody who can take the pain away. We need the child who was named Jesus. And I think that one name will help us tremendously. 
So I want to speak about that name tonight because it alone spells the end of the flames. Uh, In the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, you may recall the angel visits Joseph, a very beleaguered Joseph, and says to him, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You know, unlike new mothers and fathers, Mary and Joseph didn't have any options, (laughs) at least not when names were concerned. They didn't select one for their newborn. Instead, angelic accents gave their only begotten a name. Before he was even born, a name while he was still swimming in amniotic fluid, you will call his name Jesus. In Hebrew, Yeshua. I want to unpack for a moment that divinely dictated name. First, it's important to point out that Jesus, or Yeshua, was not the first person to have that name. It was somewhat common and had an Old Testament foundation. Yeshua, also known as Joshua, was the successor of Moses and helped to lead the people out of Israel into the promised land. Joshua, even back then, was a rescuing figure and thus had a rescuing name, a savior of sorts. And in some ways, he was a model or shadow of the Christ who was to come. Now, let me break down the sacred grammar of this impactful name. Yeshua is a combination of two Hebrew words. Um, The first one is Yeh, Y-E-H, which is a portion of the divine name, Yahweh. And then Shua, which is Hebrew, meaning to save. So the son of God's name is literally God saves. When he was walking down the street toward you, you would yell out God saves in Hebrew as he was approaching you. Uh, As if that's not enough, the angel buttresses the point by adding a clear bit of heaven's reasoning for the name. You shall call him Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. First, and this point can't be overlooked, the name Yeshua or Jesus is about God. It's an important point. It's a God who saves. God is the one who does it. The name assumes that God is, for whatever reason, positively disposed toward us in such a way that he is compelled not to harm, but to heal. This name suggests that rescue is possible, but rescue only comes from eternal power, not from earthly temporal power, our own or someone else's. We have not and cannot and will not stamp out the fire within ourselves or our fellow travelers. God has to do it. And also... Jesus' name suggests not only that it is God who acts, but that God who saves. He saves. This name does not suggest that God will help us. That's simply not good enough. Or that God will give us strength because we can't make up what is lacking in that gift. Or that God will cause us to discover our true selves, however in that is right now. No, God is not here to help us, to make us strong, to comfort us, or to make us find ourselves. God is here for something better and more definitive. God is here to save. And save us from what? Well, the text tells us. Not from our bad penmanship, not from our errant ideals, not from our unbridled and destabilizing passions, not from our psychological disharmony, not from our political madness or opposition, not from our lack of education or ironic sophistication. No, he is here to save us from the irreducible source of the furious flames that are burning us down. He's here to save us from sin. And how exactly will an infant do this? 
seems terribly ill-equipped for the task at hand. How does God save us from our sins? Well, if we flip a few New Testament pages further, we will read the answer. Uh, Jesus will save us through his own personal obliteration. He'll save us by being scorched. You know, there's a famous early Renaissance painting of the nativity in which an infant Christ is lying in a manger but staring up at the stable wall. For upon that wall is nailed a small decorative crucifix. Now, no one but the baby sees it. No one but the baby stares at it. But it is a visual way of communicating that this infant knows it is his dismal destiny, not only to be born, but to be burned, to be torched by the fires of a raging world. And so in the incarnation, God is no exception to the fiery torments of the human experience. He is the one, in fact, who runs into, willingly, scandalously, runs into the baking, burning building and carries us out. But in the midst of his mission, he himself suffocates in the smoke and burns up in the flames. But as he is burned up, he becomes for us the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is why he was born. We know it from the very beginning. It's right there in his name. He was the sacrificial savior. Well, Jesus will grow up to do a lot of things, you know. I mean, he's a very impressive person. He's exceptionally intelligent and intuitive. He'll give lectures. He'll work cures. He'll gather students. He'll touch untouchables. He'll confront hypocrites and scandalize his own purity culture with ruthless acts of love. But more than anything, he was intent on saving before anything else. He's a savior. Uh, And we need it. I need it. I think we need it always, but it feels more important now maybe than ever. You know, when I look horizontally within the world, I don't see a lot of hope, you know. I see fire and petrol. I see casualties. I think enduring hope that really steadies us in the present requires us not to look horizontally, but vertically. It requires a vertical confession and solid conviction that it is God who will have to deal with this because it's beyond me and it's beyond you. Put another way, I am beyond me and you are beyond you. Your own struggles that you have are beyond you to cure. You need something beyond the self and ultimately it will have to be God who does it. You know, my hope, friends, tonight is not that we're going to change a lot, though I'd like that very much. My hope is not that we'll secure and rescue our dysfunctional families, though they need a little help, you know, little TLC. My hope is not that we'll feel constantly balanced and harmonious within our psyches, although occasionally that would be nice. Uh, My hope is contained in the themes of Christmas, namely that God stoops low that God ducks down, that God enters through the narrow door, that God risks involvement and enfleshment, or more plainly, that God will save us. So some of you know this, but I am somewhat in love uh, with a new HBO series that is all about uh, dark Catholic intrigue. 
Uh, and it centers upon the fictitious papacy of John Paul III, who is played by John Malkovich. It's just delicious. Uh, it really is. Well, this um, particular pontiff is overburdened by a scarred and tortured past and a failing papacy and a drug addiction, actually. So in a point of duress, he organizes a meeting with a cardinal who serves as the pope's personal confessor. So the pope begins to unburden himself in his own tortured past and present with this heartfelt confession. He starts with these words. Before you stands a man who is worthless, a man without merit. When I was young, my father would relentlessly tell me that God did not like me. And he was right to do so. I'm indolent. I'm irresponsible. I'm pompous. I'm undistinguished. I'm a weak man. And I'm a drug addict. And my written work, the masterpiece that is inspiring our whole church right now, I did not write it. My brother Adam wrote it, and then after he died, I found the manuscript and pawned it off as my own. I am nothing but an imposter. And then, after a long, awkward silence, the cardinal confessor tepidly asked the Pope, Are you finished, Holy Father? And the Pope responds, Is that not enough? And then said the confessor firmly, No, it is not enough to remain unforgiven. God saves us, he says. God saves us always. God does not deny anyone the grace of salvation. It is the most beautiful thing there is. We love vanity and sin. We love deprivation and wickedness. So we believe that God has abandoned us and that God does not like us. But God does not always correct weakness. God does not always stop our hand even as it plunges into sin. No. All he does is save us. In the end, God saves us. Well, that's true. And Christmas proves it. God saves us. He saves us from the fires we didn't start and which we didn't quench. From the shame that covers our skin and from all the sins we harbor deep within. Because of the infant who was named by an angel, the flames will most certainly fail, the smoke most certainly dispel, the ground most certainly cool, and Eden most certainly regrow. For in the end, God saves us. Amen. Free at last, they took your life, they could not.